As I walked on to Chattel Street, a fair maid I did meet. She asked me to see her home, she looked and blinked straight to me away. Santi, my dear Annie, oh, you New York girls, can you dance the polka? The Long Haul Podcast, America's Irish Voice. Interviews with inspiring immigrants, renowned Irish personalities, and discussions on all things Irish America. Presented by Michael Dorgan and Johnny Kennedy. In this episode, we interview TV reporter, presenter, and producer Colm Flynn. Colm has worked for major media outlets like RTE, the BBC, and the Associated Press, and specialises in human interest stories. This year, Colm has been based in New York City and produced powerful RTE nationwide episodes highlighting the plight of Irish Americans living in the Big Apple during COVID-19. The programmes have received widespread praise from Irish people on both sides of the Atlantic. In this podcast, we discuss the delicacies of producing those shows while New York became the global epicentre of the coronavirus pandemic. We talk about the Catholic Church, as well as Black Lives Matter, rioting, and the defunded police protests across America this summer. All of Cullum's excellent videos can be viewed for free on his website, CullumFlynn.com, and you can also follow Cullum on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Colin Flynn IRE. Please subscribe and rate the Long Haul Podcast. This will help us grow our audience and ensure that we can get more podcasts to you more often. We caught up with Colm just before he left for Rome, where he set to cover stories for EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. We started off by asking Colm about his career and how hard he had to work to make the breakthrough into broadcasting. Hi Colm, so thanks very much for coming on. Um, you have a fantastic lifestyle jet-setting around the world, meeting inspiring people, seeing all different countries. You probably have the best lifestyle, only second to Johnny there up in Rhode Island, who's been golfing all, all summer. Your only downfall, column is that you have to do a bit of work. Mm. Johnny does nothing now. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> so, obviously, it's, it's, no doubt it's been a, a tough for you to get into this position, but just give us a background on growing up back home in Ireland and what made you get into the media industry. And, you know, your, your year is back home working with the different organizations like RTE and a couple of others. Thanks for that intro, uh, Michael. Just as I had written it, you read it perfectly. So thanks a million. <laughs> and it's been a crazy journey to get here to New York, a bit like yourself and no doubt like Johnny as well. But when I was a kid, um, as long as I can remember, I was just obsessed with all this, with lights and with cameras and with microphones and I thought it was magical. I was really mesmerized by broadcasting. And since I was in secondary school in Ennison County, Clare, I knew it's always what I wanted to do. And then I started plaguing my uh, local radio station, Clare FM, to give me a job. I was in fifth year. I hadn't even done the leave insert. And I kept going to them, badgering them every day. I was going to the reception desk, asking to see the boss. And eventually, in 2005, and I remember the week very well, it was March 2005, and it was the week that the Pope died, Pope John Paul II. And I went in on work experience for a week. Then all this news broke that week, including the Pope dying, there was local news. So I went out as a roving reporter, kind of with a microphone like that, asking people questions. And they thought, this guy doesn't mess up too badly. He can go out in the street and go in people's faces with a microphone. And he isn't that shy. So then it, it kind of went from there. And uh, they gave me a weekend show and I got to fill in for other shows. And I did that for four years. And then I went to Dublin to college and studied TV and radio there in Dublin. And that's when I joined RT afterwards. And 
here we are today. <laughs> I'm sure it was a bit more complicated than that. Did you have, like, was RTE your first major breakthrough gig that you got into a big media organization? I know you're on the, the radio, but it must have been, like, how, how did you get in there and what did you do at the beginning? Michael, you know this business is not complicated. It's easy peasy, <laughs> easy to get into, easy to stay in, easy to navigate. I was, when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was work in RTE. And I thought, you know, RTE when you're in Ireland is the holy grail. I want to get a job there. I want to do this and that. So after I was in Clare FM, when I was in college, one of my lecturers called Garrett Daly, he, was, um, he worked in the industry on the side as well. And his wife worked in RTE in the children's department. So then, like in Claire FM, I started the whole process again. I started badgering her, sending her emails, and eventually she said, okay, come in and we'll have a chat. And she brought me in and she said, look, we can give you an internship over the summer. We can't pay you. You'll do it for free. You'll work your backside off. And I, you know, nowadays in, in college, a lot of people, young people today expect to come out. The internship for free is something that no one likes to do anymore. But I saw this as a golden ticket and I thought, this is my in. And I went in there, I treated it like that. I worked in a, every department I could. When I would stay late at night, if I passed the desk and I saw someone I didn't know, I'd go over and start chatting to them and they would work in the radio drama department or whatever. And then they'd say, hey, actually, we might need an extra pair of hands this Saturday. Can you come in? And I just worked nonstop. At the end of the summer, this was 2009, and it was the height of the recession in Ireland. RT was losing, I think it was around 30 million euros a year. So they had a hiring freeze across all divisions. And they said to me, that was a great internship you did, Colum, but there's just no way we can keep you on. It's, it's impossible. And remember, RT then and still is very unionized. Things changed drastically then in 2009. At the end of the summer, Jerry Ryan passed away, if you remember. And that was a huge seismic shock in the organization. And not only, of course, were people, uh, you know, reeling in the sadness of a beloved broadcaster and friend and colleague dying, but then they had this scheduling dilemma because all of a sudden they had a hole in the schedule, a huge hole to fill over on 2FM. So they decided to take Ryan Tuberty, who was on Radio 1 then, over to 2FM. Now they had a hole in the Radio 1 schedule. And RT Radio 1 is the most listened to station in Ireland by a long shot. Um, a very solid schedule very seldomly changes. So they needed to put in a really great new show and they had a guy called John Murray who was doing the business of the weekend. John Murray got the gig to do this one hour show every weekday morning at nine and they needed a new team. They filled the team from within uh, the organization with staff. But video, this what we're doing now, video and audio going together was not really done then. And I had been filming things in college. And when I was there in my internship, I had started making videos to go along with radio shows. And this was, this was really new in RTE. And one of the bosses called me in and said, <clears throat> for this new show, we're doing the John Murray show. We're going to have bands in. We're going to have special guests, big celebrities. That video thing that you do on YouTube I remember this was all new to them, even YouTube, and this was 2009. Sometimes they can be a little, a few steps behind, but they said, why don't you do that for, we can give you a contract for one month and that's it. We'll pay you. And I thought, RT, you're paying me now. I'm in the door for a month. I went in there. I worked my backside off again on that show. The month turned into three months. And then there was kind of a shifting point after three months, um, I kind of had a few home runs with a few projects I had done and um, made some great videos. And then there was a big uh, event that I worked on, which I think they all liked. And then they said, here's a contract for a year. 
as a con. And then I was there for five years for the whole run of the John Murray show. The show lasted five years. John was suffering from depression. He spoke about it on air. So at the end of five years, the show um, changed and switched hands. And that's when I moved over to television and decided to make the move then to, um, to New York. So Wasn't that a long, boring story? <laughs> to be honest, Donny. Oh, excellent. I love it. No. Well, I tell you, Colin, it's, it's the hard work part and working for free that really strikes with me because if you want to do something, I know from we're in the same industry, I know that I've, I had to work for free last year when I was here. I had to do like a, basically a free intern but our essential, I just had to hang on, hang on, wait for an opportunity, build that experience. And then if you're at the right place at the right time, something might come along. But if you really want something, you're going to have to put in the hard yards at the start. You're going to have to grind away. It's sure, very similar to what Johnny did in the bar, I'm sure. Tankless hours, Johnny setting that up. But in the end, you know, it didn't all just fall into place straight away. You know, it was a lot of hard graft. Like, so it's credit to you, Colum, and credit to you, Johnny, for the bar. I'm sure people yeah, say to Johnny as well that they go, oh, you're so lucky. Or um, they yeah. say to me, yeah, you're doing well, but you're very talented. And you say, there, it, there's so many more people out there. I could list a hundred of them that are piles more talented than I am. It's 90% hard work. It's 5% luck. And then the rest of it is, is talent and all that. But it's probably the same with you, Johnny, as well, with starting the bar. There's loads of people that come over here wanting to start bars and stuff. But if they're not willing to put yeah. in the hard work... Well, that's what I was just wondering, like, and I'm not having a go with the younger generation, but it's more a system now. Does it happen as much anymore? Because I know there's this thing in the kitchen and it's called a stage, I think they call it. So it's, you literally get to go in and stand and watch a chef. And somebody complained about it a few years ago and called it slave labor. And they got rid of it. But I remember my friend coming over from Australia and he blagged his way over to get into Per Se and Columbus Circle, like the Thomas Keller restaurant, which also owns French Laundry in Napa. And he chefs would pay to get in just to stand and watch this chef and my friend went and did it every night like for a week and at the time the chef was telling them we're not allowed to do it anymore in america because somebody complained about it and said it was slave labor slave labor to get to stand and watch these chefs in this place as i say everyone would pay any amount of money to do it so that's what i was wondering do this when you said the younger people nowadays kind of turn their eyes up a little bit at interns is it a you know it's yeah not, it's, it's not that they want money for it but is it nearly like you shouldn't be doing that for free. Whereas our parents told, didn't care if you got paid. They just wanted to get you out of the house and to do something. I know. Even if it was for free. Yeah. The print of their boot in your backside as you were going yeah. out the door. But it's, it's true. Uh, we call it shadowing in the business. And I still yeah. get emails from people saying, hey, when you're going out on a shoot, the young people trying to get into the industry, um, can I come and shadow you for a day? But it's less and less now. And um, I, I don't, th it's, it wouldn't be as common to ask someone I feel now in the media industry to do an internship for a certain period of time and not pay them. Now things are different here in New York because everything is so exorbitantly expensive, but um, I kind of feel it's the same back in Ireland. Like when we graduated from college, I remember because we had that piece of paper, which in other industries maybe means more than it does in the media, but in the media, I studied for four years in Tala, a now DIT, part of DIT, but I got my a good degree at the end of four years, but in all the TV stations I've worked for and radio stations, and that includes the Associated Press, BBC, RTE, lots of different stations, never once did any network say to me when I was having a coffee with them or in that meeting room, show us your college degree. But they all want to know, show us what you've done, show us what you've made, and give us your ideas. And if you're shadowing people and working with production companies for a certain period of time for free, you normally have access to their equipment, to their resources sometimes. 
and uh, you know they'll help you and encourage you in getting your ideas to fruition. So I think it's the best thing I ever did. That three month free internship was just, and then it led to five years in RTE where I got to travel the world for TV and radio. Um, I was getting paid then, and it was the best investment ever. It's funny because bartending in New York is exactly the same, and it's just in the, the way you said, the, like the degree and the whole. You'd arrive in New York, and it's kind of like it's funny, but it's stupid at the same time. And the first thing they say to you, if you have any New York experience, you've literally told them you've just arrived over, and they don't want to know. And even if you say you've worked in a bar in Ireland, sometimes that nearly goes against you, because as you've both seen now, you lived here. The culture is so different. There's a respect level to the bartender in New York. There's nearly this. I don't know what created that. I'd say it was the buyback. I'd say it was we were like, better get on his good side if we're going to get a free drink out of this offer. Otherwise, we're not going to get an offer. But it was funny because you'd get here and you'd say, no, I've no New York experience. So what we did a lot in the long haul because people had done it for us, we used to let guys come in. I would literally, similar to what you, you would RT there, I'd say, I don't have a job at the long haul. But I'd say, come in and work for three or four nights. Work for Chris. He can have something to eat and a few drinks. But at least then when he went to the other guy, like, they must, some bar owners must think the long haul is massive because the amount of lads that went around looking for work and said, yeah, I'm working in the long haul. But they weren't actually working in the long haul. But if they did four nights training in the long haul, at least when they were going to some of the guys, whatever, that's all they wanted to know. They just wanted to know how you, you know, work through the change. Like now it's all hard. But even giving change out in America as opposed to Ireland, in Ireland, you'd give the exact amount of change. Like if it was 10.50 was the change, you would give them $10 or 10 euros and the 50 cents. You do that in America, you're not getting a tip. So you've got to give them five, five singles and five. You know what I mean? Otherwise, yeah. the guy, because you, you give a guy about a 10, you're okay, you didn't break 10 for me, you're not getting a tip. Something as simple as that, a guy coming from Ireland, that actually took more training than anything. But like you said, we used to just let them do it for free and it was worth it like for them. But nobody bitched about it. They were just so happy to get in behind the bar and be able to tell someone they had that experience. Isn't the key as well, Johnny, you know this from running a business. Someone said it to me in RT when I come in, they said, come over here. Here's what you'll do. You're going to be in here. Make yourself indispensable. So they don't think oh, they need you. Yeah. But by the time you're finished this internship, they can't think of that role. They can't think of you being gone now because you've made yourself indispensable. I'm sure it's the same with you. It is. But you know, it's funny, like uh, Connor Moore was here last week and we were talking about um, a certain bar that he worked in. And I know the guys, they have a good few bars. They used to use it to their advantage in a, in a kind of a nasty way. They would always have somebody training. So you were on eggshells. So you yeah. have this guy and your man would be saying to you, your man's great, isn't he? He said, no, that was horrible. But at the same time, it was a good, not that that was a good way, but there is that thing. You'd see a guy come in and he'd be working really hard because he was so eager. And, you know, if you didn't have that for him in that job, you could ring someone else. Like Chris that works with us, uh, Michael. Chris is like such well-known, even through any of the bars he worked in. That's how Chris got a job. Chris trained in the Mean Fiddler with Macker years ago and Macker had no job for him. He didn't have anything for him. And he rang me when I was working in Annie Morris at the time. And he says, I wish I had a job for this guy. He said, he's just so eager. He's here like half an hour early every time. He's doing everything. He's offering to sweep the floors and all. Just that sort of mentality you thought had died. And he had that great attitude about him. And like Chris has never been out of a job and nor will he be, you know, because of that indispensable attitude. Yeah, it was the same for me. That's the word, in, indispensable. Like I, when I started off, I was doing match reports for maybe under 14s, under 12s girls. Might get 40 quid for it. Might take me three or four hours to go actually watch the match and then write it up. Might be six or seven hours, but you're building those networks. You're building relationships. You're learning how to do the job. And even last year when I was here, 
I'd be more uh, into writing than video. And last year I was doing a few with the Ashing Centre. I remember saying that to Colin, I was doing just video last year with them just to make myself, just to get, just in case something came up, oh, I can do video. And I got this job then with the Queen's Post. And when he saw that I was doing the podcast, he was starting a podcast. He was like, this is great that I can get advice off you because you've experienced doing it. He was just writing only. So that's, that's what it's about, indispensable. But um, Colin, just tell us then how I'm you manage. Michael, when you, when you mentioned sport, anyone who knows me, I know nothing about sport. I mean, I know. It's okay, you work in RT. You work in RT. You're like Brent Soberty. Every time I see a sports person come on to the Late Late Show, I'll just sit there and go. I actually feel sorry for Ryan Tuberty. I had a cringe. I say, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. I hope he knows this guy's a golfer and not a hockey player. I wouldn't have a clue. I feel, I feel for Ryan because when a sports person comes out on the Late Late Show and I can oh. see that Ryan isn't in his comfort zone, I, I feel that, that nervous tension. But when I was in Clare FM, and again, not refusing anything, and I remember the head of sport came to the desk once and said, Colm, you know sport. I said, please, sport, of course I know sport. And he said, there's like an intermediate hurling quarterfinal on in Cusick Park uh, this Saturday. We need a halftime and full-time. So it's not a commentator, but you do the halftime report and the full-time report. Sorted. Don't worry about it. And I get out of there and the panic sets in and I ring a guy I know in school, Kieran Larner, and I say, Kieran, this Saturday you're coming with me. Yeah. My ear telling me that's Sean Dwyer, that's this. And I was saying, Kilmurray McMahon, <laughs> half time here. I didn't have a clue what I was saying, but I just wanted to make sure I was never asked to do it again. But, you know, it was just that thing of never saying no. You have to be a chancer to a certain extent when you're oh, starting totally. off. When I landed oh. here, I, didn't, I never wrote about boxing in my entire life. And I got an opportunity. I made a contact. And uh, there's a Katie Taylor's fighting there, and uh, where was it? It was down in Philadelphia. Will you write? Will, will you do a report for the Irish Times? It's like the Irish Times, World Championship Boxing, Katie Taylor, first time ever writing about boxing. But <laughs> I did all of them then last year, and then that kind of led to oh, you're writing with the Irish Times, and I actually actually went towards getting my visa then to actually allow me the opportunity to stay here in the end. So it's just about it's about using what comes your way and utilizing it. But uh, just Colin, we'll, we'll move on there. Just so. You've been in New York a couple of times. So, how did you land here? And you've got your own, you're working freelance, like, aren't you? You've your own business so that you're, yeah, you do I, was, party, I finished on the John Murray show on radio after five years. I had uh, traveled to New York a few times for the first time. So, they had sent me over for St. Patrick's Day and a Christmas to do special reports. And when I came over here, I loved it. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. I'm in New York. And then when the John Murray show finished, I always had it in the back of my mind. I'd love to go back and kind of give it a crack of the whip. And then I joined the Today Show on TV with Dahi Amara uh, from Cork. And I was like their roving reporter. So I did that freelance for a few years. And uh, I started testing it out. I came over for the summers because I was wise enough to know that I had such a good experience in New York, but I was doing it on all expenses. I was staying in a hotel in Manhattan. You know, everything was paid for by RTE. So I maybe had an unrealistic view of what it was like to live in New York. So I came over for a few summers. I really loved it, lived in Brooklyn, lived in Manhattan. And then I decided to um, pack in what I was doing in Ireland. And I said to RTE, to Nationwide and the Today Show, look, I'll still do freelance stuff for you from the States and I'll go over. And that's when I started working with the BBC. So then I started doing loads of radio documentaries and TV reports for BBC from here in New York. And then started pestering networks here and the cycle starts again. So that's it's still a, it's a, it's like you're well established now, Colin. But it's still a tough slog to kind of find stories or find find opportunities here, finding jobs, like not having a, a consistent salary or consistent wage. 
Thankfully, yeah, at the start, it definitely is. And then I think the more you prove yourself and the more you go to them with stories, the tide turns and they come to you with stories. So I was always pitching to BBC at the start and very grateful, grateful for any airtime I got. And then I noticed my phone started to ring and it was someone in London or someone in BBC Manchester saying, hey, Colm, can you go do this documentary and that? And then they, they got bigger and they were saying, hey, Colm, I remember one day I was here in a cafe and they called and said, can you go to Argentina next week to Buenos Aires to interview the Pope's nephew? So they started trusting you with these bigger stories. So then I got to the point where I couldn't keep up with the work, thank God. I, the phone was calling the whole time and I was going to Estonia to do something next week in Argentina. They, there was one year where I was on like 50 foreign trips just flying around, which was a bit too uh, much. But then recently I've started working more or less full-time with EWTN, which is this big global Catholic network. So I have a year's contract with them to produce a certain amount of content. I still do some freelance stuff on the side um, for RT and BBC, but the majority of the stuff I have to do now is with them. And that's what's bringing me to Rome next. Um, so so just tell tell me like you've uh, it's yourself and Patrick there now at the moment, isn't it? You usually had two cameramen. You were telling me, you know, it's uh, just you were telling me last night that it was just uh, an opportunity. Patrick came along and introduced himself to you, and just like we were just talking with the last for the last ten fifteen minutes, he made contact with you. He showed you what he could do, and then you hired him. But I'm sure you could tell me the story better. Yeah, they, there's a few cameramen I've worked with in New York and Tom Rowley is a great cameraman I've been working with for years and we go out as a team, he'd be shooting things, I, I would cut them together and that's the great thing about being freelance. If I come up with an idea to send to RT like Nationwide and I said, hey Nationwide, I want to do this story on Joe Bloggs who lives in Manhattan um, but I could just be the reporter, that's it. I can't shoot or edit it, just the reporter. In the past, that would have been the norm and budgets were bigger and they would have said if they wanted the story badly enough, we'll either A, hire a crew in New York, union cameramen in New York started $1,000 a day, so you'd need, and a cameraman won't do sound, so you'd need maybe another $500 for sound. You'd need lighting, that'd be another couple. Of, so it's huge costs. Or they fly a crew over from Ireland. Nowadays, that's all changed. So they say to me, Colin, we like the story. We don't want to send a crew. Just give it to us ready to broadcast. So I have to hire the crew, whether that's one cameraman, two, three cameras, if it's a big setup. And I used to always work with a couple of cameramen. And then when COVID hit, um, the main cameraman I was using, Tom, he's asthma. So he wasn't able to work throughout COVID. I had met this guy in Bushwick in a cafe, Patrick, in November, sitting in a cafe, working on my laptop, and we got chatting, and he said, you're from Ireland. I said, you're from Ireland. He's from Sligo. I'm from Clare. And he said, I work in graphic design, but I do camera work on the side. And he said, God, I'd, I'd love to work with you at any stage if you need a helping hand and just come along and help out. He very much had that attitude. I just want to help. And I said, okay. Took his card, put it in the back pocket. And then at Christmas, we had a bigger shoot than normal on because it was being sold. It was for RTE and BBC and EWTN, so for three networks. So we had a bit of a bigger budget. And it was an interview with Santa, but he had like an amazing backstory. He became Santa during the Vietnam War. And he had all, it's just an amazing character. He also runs a school for Santas in the summer. And he's the most in-demand Santa in Hollywood. He's the real deal with the beard and all that. So we wanted to shoot this beautiful, magical... It's not old... Billy Bob Thornton, then. It's not Billy Bob Thornton and Bad Santa, no? What, what did you say, uh, Johnny? It's not Billy Bob Thornton from Bad, Bad Santa, is it, no? No, it's not. Tim Conaghan is his name. Kind of like him. Kind of like that one. He was an alcoholic, but, you know. Really? Yeah, you got to watch it. <laughs> That's, it's funny. He was, it was just an amazing shoot, and then we hired your man, Patrick. Patrick came in, 
and he did an amazing job. It just looked beautiful. And then after it, coronavirus hit and I called him and I said, my regular cameraman can't work. And he said, funny, I'd just been let go from the company I was working in. So he started working with me more or less full time and has been since. He's downstairs editing right now. Awesome. Jeez, brilliant. So just you did a couple of COVID stories that that initial one with, the, with Nationwide, I think every Irish American in, in New York or America saw that. That was really, really powerful. Great shooting, like for me, the drone, but the real stories, like I think you covered all bases there. But you were telling me you got the call on the Thursday and you need to have it in on the, on the Monday. Tell us about the rush to get in. To get yeah, that. when COVID hit, uh, I'm sure like yourself, Johnny, and like you, Michael, it just caught everyone by surprise and you're trying to sort out what you can do, what's allowed by law, what's not allowed. And we'd started covering the stories for BBC and RTE. And then normally, because Nationwide is an Irish program, it's in the name, Nationwide, so it covers Ireland. And the odd time they'll take a report from me in New York or whatever. Um, but it'd be rare that you'd get a full program from another country unless there was a really good reason. So they contacted me and we were talking about how we might be able to cover it in a report. And then they called back and said, listen, we got the budget together. We want a full program from New York. And I thought, okay, well, we can do this, you know stories, find them, research them, set them up, book the crew, go film them, then edit them. Normally we'd spend a couple of weeks doing this, but because things were changing so quickly with COVID, if you shot a program in two weeks, it would be out of date. Everything would have changed. You couldn't broadcast it because we wouldn't be adhering to the social distancing rules and so on. So they said, we can do it, but this was on a Thursday. We need it Monday night. It needs to be on air, prime time, seven o'clock, Monday night. So I remember we were, for four days, we just sweat blood and tears. Uh, myself and Patrick got no sleep. We started ringing around. And like you, you want to cover all bases because people watching back home, everyone has a connection with New York or America. They want to see how their sons and daughters are getting on. They want to see how their elderly cousins are getting on, how the bar staff are doing, how the undocumented are doing. And dare you leave one out, you know, you'll hear all about it from the audience. So we were just ringing everyone. We tried to cover as many bases as possible. We didn't get them all in the first program. And then we went back and we did a second program where we got someone documented and all that. But you're right. The reaction was phenomenal. We, we watched it here going out. We, we delivered it just a few hours to go. Nationwide were screaming on the phone. I was sitting right here at this desk. I had the executive producer of Nationwide on Ryan having a heart attack on the phone looking at his clock in Cork, it was uh, just a few hours to broadcast. They, had, they didn't have it. I had it here and I just didn't want to send it until we had it perfect and then we sent it. And then, you know, transferring a file over the Atlantic, <laughs> over the internet, a huge file of half hour show. And if we transferred it and I thought, okay, we've got two hours to spare or something. And then there was a problem with the transfer. It failed halfway through. So we're starting from scratch and I'm thinking for the first time in my career, we're going to miss this broadcast. It's not going to make it. Whoa. We got it in. They took it. I, I shouldn't say it, but I don't even know if they viewed it before. I'm sure they did view it beforehand, but it more or less went out nearly as live. And myself and Patrick, we finished editing it here. We went into the sitting room over there, opened the laptop, and then watched it going out live. And we said, we just sent that. We clicked send on that like two hours ago. Whoa. And we watched it. And then our phones just blew up. And it was such a, a relief that it went down well the tone was right because people were dying and you know you've got to get the tone right and I think the tone was right we had a beautiful singer Niall Colony at the end singing and shots of New York and um, then two weeks later we did a follow-up program when things got much more serious um, 
Yeah. Are you nervous, Colin, when you're putting that out in the sense of how it's going to be portrayed in some way? Now, I, I agree with you. I've seen it. I've seen it was nailed. But like I, you, like, actually, for a lot of us, I got to see how bad New York was by watching that. And I'm living in New York because everyone had gone locked down. So I was literally sitting in Sunnyside and then my phone is blowing up. And it genuinely, you're not exaggerating, it does blow up. And you know, because when you get that mate to text you, that never texts you, stuff like that, you know that they've watched the same thing. So the way you portrayed it was brilliant. But I even found like, I didn't even think it was that bad. Well, I sorry, I did think it was that bad. But to see it, as Michael said, to see the drone, like you were even there near close to the Long Hall in 34th Street. And to see how dead it was. And then I found, I found myself nearly defending it when people were texting on it. To, to, so they wouldn't worry. Because I was like, ah, oh, you know what, it's fine where I am. I said, I'm grand and blah, blah, blah. And then I was even questioning myself, is it that bad? But it is that bad. And it was that bad. And as your follow-up show showed, it got worse. It really did. Like, so it was a great piece. But did you find yourself worrying, like, is that going to look worse? Or is it, is it worse or is it better? What way is it to explain it, like, nearly? Yeah, Johnny, that's such a good question in that because you don't want to over-sensationalize things. We can take a drone shot of New York looking quiet and you look at it and go, oh, we can put a bit of dramatic music onto that, add a slow zoom in, slow the speed down 50% into slow motion. And next thing it looks biblical, like apocalypse. So we've got to, there's so many things at play. We want to portray what it's really like, the severity of it. We want to do it in a captivating way that keeps the audience watching because nowadays it's so competitive uh, for eyeballs on TV screens. We don't want to over-exaggerate it. We don't want to underplay it either. Because remember, this was a time when the Department of Foreign Affairs, I think it was Department of Foreign Affairs, the Irish government anyway, were issuing a statement encouraging Irish people to come home. They were saying Irish people on J-1 visas, Irish people who don't have health insurance, who haven't got full-time employment, we recommend you come home. It's that bad. And I was getting so many messages from people saying, my mom is badgering me to come home. My dad won't get off my back to come home. What do you think? So I knew this program was going to make a lot of moms and dads either relaxed about it or calling Johnny and Mary and telling them to get now. So I think we hit the balance right, but I got people getting in touch with me saying like you originally thought it's not that bad. I got people saying, Colm, you should come up here and fill them in this place. We've had so many deaths. And actually one of my uh, friends who was in program two was the Irish undertaker. And he saw the program and he said, Colm, you think that's bad what you showed tonight? we're doing, we normally do three funerals a week. He said, we're doing six a day and we're a small funeral home. And that's when I said to him, can we come up and film? And he said, come up, I'll open the door. You can do whatever, you can shoot whatever you want. And that was an amazing opportunity. We went up to his funeral home. And I think that really made me realize that it was bad was when we walked, because when you walk through New York on a sunny day, even at the height of it, through the park, you see the sirens and the tents but it's still a beautiful sunny day and it's easy to go, well, it's not that bad. It hasn't affected me or my close friends. But when we went to his Irish funeral home in Yonkers and we opened the door and in his waiting room, which is normally for family, was just cardboard boxes everywhere with bodies in them and sheets on the ground covering bodies. We saw them right there. And then I thought, wow, this is, this is not normal. That was uh, Phil Anderson. Was it a column piece from, he's a Cork man. Clive Anderson, Cork Clive man, Anderson. Yeah. I you know? know. No, I don't, but I was, I was just watching it. And jeez, uh, um, I, I actually watched it again there last night just to, just to re- research for this. But um, 
like it, it was powerful seeing it on video, but you were actually there looking, like we've all been to the removals, the funerals, you know, we might see a loved one laid out there in the remove in the funeral home or whatever, but you're up there in a morgue and you see there must have been dozens of bodies all zipped up. How did that, how did that impact you or how, how did you take that? It's only in reflection when you really think about it and looking back, because at the time, I'm sure like Johnny on a busy night, like you, when you're up against the deadline, Michael, you're so focused, you're, you're laser focused. And sometimes you're not taking in the reality of what's happening around you. I'm looking at Patrick thinking, are we getting the shots? I'm looking at Clive, listening to what he's saying, saying, do we need to record that? Do we need to put a mic in him? You're looking at all these different things. Um, yeah, you're, you're in the moment, but you're kind of in work mode moment. Mm. But what really, it did strike me when we went to the cemetery because the rules at the cemetery were that only one family member could enter. And so there were no cars from family members. There was no family at the funerals, but yet there was a traffic jam to get in and the traffic jam was hearses. There were hearses back to back. I remember that was one thing that I saw when I just went, you know, you get shivers down, yeah. your, down your spine. I looked at it and we saw hearses kind of stretched back. And I thought, wow, that is just something I'll never see again in my life, hopefully. And um, that was one of the more surreal moments. But it's only looking back at the footage and myself and Patrick, when things have calmed down a bit, have uh, a few moments, we've seen a clip come up on Facebook or someone has shared something we've done. And I, th I say to him, can you believe we did that? Can you believe you went and made this? Like at that time, we never yeah. took that in, you know? Um, but I'm sure it's like everything you're doing as well. You know, when Johnny, when you look back and say, can I really believe that I had to close up the bar and like this all happened in a short period of time and yeah. no one still knows what's going to happen next? Like we're six months, everyone's like six months closed now. Like, and <clears throat> that was the other thing I was going to hit on with you. I was saying to Michael there before we come on, you know, when you hear people say, oh, I, see, I know people that emigrated. I know. I literally have know of about 10 people that have literally moved home this week. And these are not J1s. They're not people that are on like, you know, we're here for a year and two. Some of them are undocumented. Most of them have green cards. Most of them are citizens. And I think September was kind of a, an unrealistic, but we all were saying, oh, maybe in September, maybe in September with the bars. But this news this week that there's no sign of indoor opening, personally, I'm not that shocked about it because it just seemed the writing on the wall the way this mayor is going. But at the same time, it still is a shock. You're still like, are they for real? Like I've seen families go home this week, like literally families that had probably was their long-term plan. But there again, I know families here that their kids are like in their late teens and they were always going home. But their, their life was good, so they just stayed and they stayed and now they're citizens and they travel home for long periods in the summer. And some of these families would have been the same. You know, they probably would have stayed. Like, yeah, we'll go next year, we'll go next year. That's sad now. And like, the thing I'd like to know is, <clears throat> I'm not knocking at home, but what are they going home to? Like, this is sad for them. Like, their hand has been forced here. Yeah. Like, if you think you're going home, you know you're going home. You're putting things in place, whether it be a driver's license thing, whether it be, you know, where to live. Like, they can't go back living with their parents. You know, you're coming back from America now with, like, yeah. three kids, like a couple, even two adults. Where are they going to go live? And now their hands are forced. And what are they going to do at home? Like, it's sad for a lot of people. And what's driving industry. them home, Johnny? Is it the health insurance? that they lost their health insurance? Is that the big worry? I would say the rent. I would say rent is, their, is the big thing for a lot of them. A lot of them are paying high, they're paying, you know, New York rents. And I don't mean, these people are all living out in, in the suburbs, like they're not living in Manhattan. But the fear of knowing where, where's the renting going to went. Like the social welfare was cut to like 590. And now the rent probably is anything up to 2000 for a two bedroom, maybe in Sunnyside or Woodside or wherever, in Woodlawn. Like that's 
that's yeah. the win in a way, and there's no sign of their bar opening. They could all wing it for the summer, and that's what they were doing. They were just winging it for the summer, and thought, okay, September comes around. Like, they weren't, weren't being unrealistic. Like, they didn't expect football season to come back and all these things. But just even to get back to work in a little shape or form. And I think once that news came out the other day, like, genuine, it's no coincidence. I know, off the top of my head now, I know of 10 that went this week, and they're all in the service industry. And one guy in particular, I know, this man had been in his 50s. And he's been here like 25, 30 years and he's just gone now. And like, I'd say rent is the bigger factor for a lot of them. And maybe they have a family member they feel they can go home and stay with. I was in Chicago last week and uh, we were able to dine inside. Not they'd spread out the tables, but you know, and places where there were so many people sitting outside, they had tables outside, but dining inside as well. Um, mm. You wonder how some cities can do it and seem to be doing it well and safely and how other cities... Long Beach, Long Beach are doing it. Yeah. You're like yeah. less than an hour on the train. You have people like, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, lives in Long Beach, he's a bar owner. As he says, I cycled into Queens yesterday when he came down by the Rockways and he's able to sit in a restaurant there. I'm up here since 1st of June. They've had 50% indoors since the 1st of June. They've had no spike. They've known nothing. It's, it begs belief. Listen, we could cover this all day. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? The way the mayor is going. He's no intentions of opening. He'd rather burn the city at this point. But on the Irish perspective, it's the families that have invested 10, 15 years into the place. And they've probably ate into a lot of their savings to get to this point from March to now. And that's not even including the undocumented. Like, because the undocumented, I don't know how they've done it. And you're talking about people that might have not, no intentions of ever going home. And they could have invested 20 odd years here. Like, where are they going? I have no idea. That's just super sad for them. Their, their hands are forced to go home now. And that's, what's at home for them is, I don't know. It, it is so sad. And the, the people who are on those visas who go home because of the travel ban, I haven't been able to go home and see my parents. They won't get back in. And then if they do go back and the travel ban is lifted, the visa mm-hmm. ban is still in place for so many people. And we don't know when that's going to be. Well, they say the end of the year, but that could be reviewed as well. So... Yeah, and it's, it's. Do you stay? Do you go? It's a, yeah. What do you do? You know. But if you're in your line, what are you going to do, uh, Johnny? How much longer can you go on like you are with the bar closed? Well, it's more how much longer can the um, the landlord go on? Like the landlords have been pretty decent to me up to this point, but like they haven't done a whole lot for commercial landlords in Manhattan. So at what point? Like it's very easy for people to sit around and they do say it like, oh, what's the landlord doing for you? Is he giving you a break? Is he doing this? Who's where's his break? Yeah. You know, what are they doing for him? It's mm-hmm. not, not every landlord is like an SL Green or a Trump or something. Yeah. They're not all multi-millionaires. And even if they are, they're not going to take a hit. Somebody's building to have his mortgages up to the yin yang on the other building, on the other. It's, it's not going to end well. Like, we're, we're, we're lucky enough now with the long haul, in a sense. He, like, he's been pretty good to us. But at what point do I make a deal with him? So let's say I agree to pay him 50% from now. Now to when? When yeah. do I open it? When are you going to open? I, most of my friends, a lot of my friends did deals very early. And they were right to do them at the time. But now all of a sudden that deal is not looking so good. So where do they go from here? Like just, I think, and I've probably said this in a previous podcast, January and February will be a pretty bleak time in New York for the bar business. Because if we can't get open now, even at 25% like New Jersey or stuff like that, 50%, if we can't do that in September, what chance have we got in January or February? So people are going to walk away from bars in January and February. 
It's tough. And I know the restaurants, like you can dine outside and all that now, but when it starts getting cold, but bars aren't, I, you've, I heard you say this before in a podcast that you have this, you created the atmosphere in the long haul of the pop in for a chat, the cozy atmosphere, yeah. neighborhood bar. You can't have that really out in the street. Um, no. The traffic whizzing by and all that. And if you want that setting out in the street, I'd be more inclined to go to a restaurant if you're sitting down for a meal. But you've got, yeah. You look look. But like you look at it and you see like there's people like with restaurants and stuff. Any of these bars that are open at the moment, they're all open on the basis of the PPP loan, the PPP loan money. Mm. Anyone like all my friends, they're they're not making money. They're running their bars based on that loan. Like certain in the neighborhoods are doing all fine, maybe Upper East Side and Upper West Side, different places. But anyone in Midtown, the only reason they're open is because they're burning through that money. So when that money's gone, where do they go then? And that'll be gone. In some cases, they might get a Christmas over. A lot of them probably right now, I spoke to a guy yesterday, and he's four weeks left on the PP loan money. So when that's gone, he's basically looking at his landlord and then he's gone. But all the jobs are gone with that. And we're only talking about the Irish here, guys. I'm saying, what can we go home for? At least we can go home. What about the Spanish guy? What about the guy, like, where are they going? They came here, like, they, they spent a lot of money to get here. They have no other option. I had one of my cooks text me last night and asked us to write a letter that he needs basically within the next three or four days to give to his landlord. And the letter is me stating when he was last paid and when he last got his check to prove to try to get a reduction. And this is a guy with three kids, like oh, he's three kids under the age of 10. Like, where is he going to end up? He does, it's not like he can head back to Mexico and hell's fine. His family in Mexico are relying on him in America making money to send home to them. You know? Where's there's, that also, there's also quality of life issues here. No, I'm covering, I cover crime daily here in Queens and just the, the rate of violent crime in New York City alone is just spiraling. Murders, shootings every weekend. People are, and the billionaires have left and the, the, the moving agencies are, have seen a 70% increase in, in movings. People are fleeing the city and it's going to be like this. If the bars aren't open, the bars won't be open at 100% until February, I'd say, at this stage. So we've got a couple of months ahead of us. And I do think after the election, I I do think we're going to see a flare-up of rioting and looting once again uh, when the election results come in. I think it's going to be... I think it's going to be contested. It's going to be going, going on for a couple of months and we could see a return to those, riot, those riots that we saw earlier in the summer. Michael, when I was in um, Chicago there last week, or the week before, we, I was walking through downtown one night and like I said, lots of people sitting outside, look beautiful. And then, oh, phone is ringing here, I think. Sorry about that. Call's coming in. That's probably another podcast. <laughs> Call me when you're... Make sure you ring me now if we go over 30 minutes. And <laughs> yeah. the queue, that's, the, that's the queue. Connor wants to go. Yeah. I said, say that's this is an emergency. That, do- that dog is talking that's shite. Call. <laughs> that's me, Colin. Colin. I says to Colin, if he goes over the half hour, I'll ring you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm ranting on here. You cut me off whenever you want. But the one thing, Chicago, I was walking through the city. I saw this beautiful big truck like a black truck with a big trailer and they had a kind of a ramp down the back and I was walking past and I looked in and I saw them loading in a Bentley and loading in another Mercedes. People were moving their cars in and getting out. And I thought, wow, some very wealthy people here in downtown Chicago are packing up and they're getting out. Chicago's had a lot of protests recently as well. And were you there? I've seen the trucks up here, Michael. I've seen the New York trucks up here. I've seen the removal trucks up here. New York plates. Yeah. I just recorded the other day and sent it to my brother. I've seen two or three of them down the street here and they're moving in, coming out from New York. The guy spoke to a local realtor and he said they're, the, 
the, the demand for houses in the area from mainly from New Yorkers, he says, is way up. It's, it's the economy and people are terrified I've been at the, we, there was a, a protest here in support of the police a couple of weeks ago and then you had the defund the police movement and they clashed up here on Sunnyside and the people you know the people who are living here all their lives the elderly they are living in fear around here the way the way crime has spiraled but uh, Colin I saw those, you, had, you had a great shot uh, you caught the shot of them in, you were in Chicago and they were lifting the bridges because uh, because of the looting, were you there just to cover that? Because I think the Chicago one just spiked all, like like almost spont- spontaneously that weekend. Were you there to cover that, that the, the riots? First, or? no, I wasn't covering it. I was there meeting some colleagues who work for another TV network. But uh, we went on a boat tour, and you know, Chicago has all these beautiful bridges over the water in downtown, and they go up and down. But for the whole weekend, they had them all up to stop the looters and rioters moving around. So it was just surreal because when they're up, you hear the ringing of the bell, ding, 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 and it's constant. So it was just another one of those little things you look at and go, this is so strange what's happening here at the moment. Yeah. When well, we look back in 2020 and we have got a, we've got a big election to come, like 2020 oh, was the year that <laughs> everyone, everything just went to kind of pot. Like uh, we'll be lucky we, we, we'll survive it. Like we'll be looking back in a couple of years and just going 2020, what a, what a shit show. <laughs> what a bad year. <laughs> But you're oh, as safe as a house, Michael. I'm on the eighth Sorry. floor, yeah. I'm up in the eighth floor. I'm fine. <laughs> You'll watch it all go down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're, you're down in Brooklyn. What's, what's it been like in Brooklyn? Brooklyn's been fine where I am. I'm in bed and uh, yeah, it's been fine. We've had some protests pass and all that, but I haven't seen anything violent around here. Um, you know, I think it's all been happening maybe down near Prospect Park or in Manhattan. But here so far, it's been good, thankfully. Oh. What are your thoughts on, do you have any thoughts on what's going on over the summer in terms of these, uh, the, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests and like, you've seen some of the rioting, what are your own thoughts on it? Or? So many thoughts, um, but no, look, it's one of those things, you know, as a reporter who is on RT and BBC and different networks, I have to remain impartial and try and do a good job on it. And I think I do, whereas, you know, networks here, they take a side in the room with it. It just saddens me when you see such a great country of 350 million people being so divided. And what makes me even more sad is that people can't have a conversation nowadays. If you sit down at a dinner table and you say, oh, you support that person? Yeah, I I agree with some things they do or I don't. I actually support this other person that people will get angry and upset and it will destroy nights and rip friends apart. It, it just is bonkers. And when I see things, I, I saw um, OKCupid, the dating website, they were running ads on the subway recently saying, ladies, it's okay to only date men who march with you. And then the next ad was, men, it's okay to only date uh, men who are uh, pro-something. And it was, it was telling people in a billboard ad, don't even go for a coffee or date someone who doesn't talk, walk, think, or act like you. I mean, if that's the attitude that people are having, no wonder things are so polarized. I won't Sorry. be on any of them dating sites. I might try it. Which, which one was that again, Colin? I'll ask him if it's going to go on that one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Colin, because like, as a reporter, and what I, what I do with the, the Queen's Post here is we are just reporting on what happens. There is no slant, either left or right, and my editor is straight down the middle. Now, we have our own personal beliefs but you have to report the news like the protest a couple of weeks ago when the defund the police movement clash with the pro-police it's just what happened you have to report i think some people appreciate that and some other people other people they they don't they you know what's your view on it but as a reporter it's just who what where and when 
and you just you just report it like that and like i i think people here forget that you know and uh, it's a shame because they when you look at fox and you look at cnn they could be reporting on one story the same story yeah. but when you watch the two outputs from the networks it's like they're talking about two completely different stories mm. it's like chalk and cheese now why is that it has to be biased journalism it is biased journalism it's turned into showbiz and entertainment it's advocacy journalism, I think, was the best way I described it. They're both pushing, they're pushing their side, the four main, the MSNBC, CNN. They're pushing, their, they're pushing the Democrats, and then you Fox on the right pushing conservatives. And at least they, we, you kind of know agenda. where it is. And Black Lives Matter fits into it, and you know it, it will sit well on one network and not on another. The masks fit into it. The, it. Everything is so politicized here. It's hard to find an event, a movement that isn't politicized. And if it isn't politicized when it begins, it sure as hell is when it's finished. And that wrecks the movement. That's the one thing I'm sad about the Black Lives Matter movement. Of course, it's something that we all stand for. We'd all, we want equal opportunities and rights for everyone, especially those who are in underprivileged, primarily the black community in this country. But when I see it, to some extent, start to become destroyed by an inner core who I think are kind of eating it from the inside and destroying it, I just think it's a shame because the message is totally lost then. Yeah, they're not there. They're it. The Reverend Al Sharpton or, um, or, D, or uh, Jesse Jackson, he isn't here on the weekend when there is nine or ten black people shot by other black people in New York City or Chicago where there's shootings every weekend. They're not out for those. They're out when it's a black on white. And I think, in my opinion, they stir a lot of it, which is, sh- which, is just, which is a shame because, in my opinion, I'm living here two years, this is the most diverse country in the world. And I don't see racism. I don't see... Like, oh, when this happened over the summer, people were like, oh, it's getting very bad. And I, it's, it's not like that in America. People get on. This, where I am in the neighborhood, there's people from... All, uh, Queens is probably... The, it's the world's borough where my myself and Johnny live there's so many and people get on and then you kind of see how you know the, the politics plays in and the media and they kind of pit people against each other it's it is it's 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 sad to see it really is like parking Kerry, isn't it <laughs> <laughs> let's all go back to Ireland let's all go back Colum, tell me um, you're 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 we caught you the right time now because you're moving you're moving you're on the move next week and i just want to tell anyone who wants to instead of binge watching netflix go on to columnflynn.com and all your your documentaries are up there and i was flicking through them and they're just there's such a, a wide variety different teams different genres it's brilliant i just said anyone who wants to what, what was just sitting around for a couple of hours log on to column's website and watch some of the 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 documentaries that you've done they're fantastic so just you're you're on the move next week you're leaving us here in new york you're off you're back back uh, back to europe tell us what's I'm going down heading to rome in two i'm going to estonia first for a week uh, for a show and then i'm heading to rome and this, just, just, isn't just remember this probably won't go for about two months <laughs> this won't go for two months okay so i'm in rome right now i'm speaking from the just behind the vatican but this has been planned it's not be, i'm not leaving new york because of the coronavirus or anything this has been planned for a long while i was meant to move in april but then covid hit and it hit italy the worst in europe so this move was pushed back but basically i'll be there for nine months uh, reporting on the vatican for this catholic network so i'll still be doing bits on the side for rt at the weekends but primarily I'll be standing in front of the Vatican talking about world leaders who are visiting, uh, doing different interviews and covering different stories around Rome. So wish me luck. It should be interesting. So that's probably a lot safer over there for the next couple of months. You were with Katie Couric last week, I saw. What's the, what's the, 
what's coming up there. You were teasing it to us. I remember uh, down through the years, I used to stay up till half 12 at night. Katie Quirk would come on on Sky News at 12.30, on CBS at 12.30. So she's someone I've watched for years. So how did you, what, what, what's the, the project Katie, there? She's a legend. She's an icon and she's what they call America's sweetheart. And we are, are doing a, a video production with the Archdiocese here of New York about the Al Smith dinner, which is this big, beautiful dinner that happens every year. And every four years on a presidential year, they have the, the presidential candidates there to speak. So we're making a production around that and she's part of it. So that's, uh, that's it. <laughs> who, are, who are some of the biggest, biggest personalities you've met down through the years, Colum? Because I normally cover human interest stories, it's normally the, um, it's not big names that I'm used to meeting. <clears throat> I've met like the McGregors and all that. And I remember meeting the Beckhams, they were cool as well. But I love meeting just ordinary people who are a bit eccentric and a bit mad and passionate. All the best reports I've done are not with celebrities or stars. They're with people who are, have a passion for something. Someone could have a passion for matchsticks. And if they're passionate enough about it, someone will listen for five minutes. So the people who have passion are the ones that I love meeting. But I've met some great... I remember I met an, uh, the world's best amateur astronomer in Kansas two years ago. And he moved to the middle of Kansas, <clears throat> excuse me, because there's no light pollution. So he moved his family into the middle of nowhere, near no town, near no city. And he just spends his nights gazing up at the stars. So it's stories like that. Um, they're the people I love meeting. His kids just love him. You know what I mean? Yeah, come on, we're going to move to the middle of nowhere. His kids must be over the moon. <laughs> He's torn the family apart. They can't stand it. <laughs> they're away from civilization. <laughs> But just like guy with a passion, you can't help sit and just eat That's it up true. while he's saying. And is that the plan for the next couple of years, Colm, to kind of move around and do, do those kind of projects? Or do you, do, you, do you intend on settling down somewhere? What's the kind of, or do you have a yeah, long-term plan? What's settle the... down eventually. You know, I'm, it's been four great years in New York. Now Rome, <clears throat> hopefully that will be a lot of fun too and interesting. And then maybe come back to the US, maybe go back to Ireland. We'll have to see what's on the table you know, there's all, always little offers coming in here and there, but I just love the stories I cover now, so I want to keep doing it for as long as possible. But I'm not getting any younger guys, as you can tell, so I'm going to have to settle down. Someday I'll be up at the, the perch, the height like you there, Michael and Queens, looking down on everyone. <laughs> and I've made it. Awesome. Is there any documentary in particular, Colin, I wanted to ask you, is there any documentary in particular you'd love to cover? Is there anything you'd love to do, like something that... Do you ever see that scene in intermission where the reporter's going in and asking the guy, is there any chance he wants to go and follow Colin Meaney and your man's like, would you ever piss off? Like, you know what I mean? It's done. <laughs> is there anything that you would love to cover that you, or, or, or have you covered it? Or are you about to cover it in Rome, maybe? I, I would love to do a really in-depth big documentary around the world about the intercession of science and faith. As someone who's into their faith and obviously who uh, I love physics as well, I love science, um, I am often, I'm fascinated when I interview people. I remember once I was in Trinity and I interviewed a, a, a microbiologist who was also a Christian. And just when they have these ways of interlocking the two beliefs in their life, I would love to yeah. do an in-depth documentary about that that explores, explores both and talk to people who are far more intelligent than I, which wouldn't be hard to find and just get them all on camera in one place, I think would be great. Yeah. Are you surprised that there's a there's there's still a huge uh, Christian Christian stronghold here in America for for uh, for a country you know we that's into you know a lot of culture sports you know sometimes you could say that we've kind of moved on a bit from 
from you know the basic Christianity, but there's such a strong cohort of Christians in America. Are you, are you surprised that um, that that's still the case? Not really, because you know when I, when I look at Christianity and religion in general around the world, you know at the core of it, love, compassion, forgiveness, second chances. Um, you know, I'm not surprised that it still is there in, in large amounts. Maybe, obviously, when you go down to Alabama or Tennessee and you see the huge mega churches, that is always kind of impressive to see. And what does surprise me, I suppose, are, are the extremists. When you go and you see groups like the Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas, who I've met before, who um, they take bits of the Bible and they use it to justify hatred and horrible actions. That I'm surprised at. I can see why it's allowed here because of the First Amendment and freedom of speech. But a core Christianity base, not really extreme Christianity. Yeah, that does surprise me. And you are you are a, a strong Catholic. It's been tough for the last couple of years in Ireland. But um, you know, and you were saying that you're you're covering with the Catholic News Network, and you were kind of saying when you got involved that it was kind of a, you know, the the affinity for the Catholic Church, I suppose, in the last couple of years has waned somewhat. And you know, um, you you still you know you still have your Catholic roots, Catholic Catholic beliefs. Has it been? Has it been tough or? It's been tough in the respect that, like everyone, when you hear the stories, you kind of have to shut your eyes and it makes you uh, kind of clench your teeth and cringe and feel anger and sorrow when you hear about abuse that happened and uh, the cover-up of abuse. I don't know what's worse, the abuse or the cover-up. And But what I find very difficult is knowing that it was a small percentage of the church. And you can't say anything like this without sounding like you're defending what happened, which I'm not for a second. And I think anyone who perpetrated those crimes should face the full extent of the law and be kicked out of the church. Um, and, I, and I still, while saying that, thinking of a famous recent case of Cardinal Pell in Australia, I still think everyone deserves to have their side heard as well and to get a fair hearing. I think innocent until proven guilty or have enough surmountable evidence that there's no shadow of a reasonable doubt. But but yeah, it was difficult hearing all that stuff. But then again, when I look at the core teachings of the church and the message of the church, I think, well, it's for me, it's the truth. And that will always shine through. And throughout history, the church has gone up and down. It's ebbed and flowed. It's had scandals. It's had rocked by wars. It's had great leaders. It's had terrible leaders. It's had good and bad popes. So it survived two and a half thousand years. I think there must be something there. And when I look at the abuse as well, and you say, okay, well, if I was going to say, I, I can't believe in the church anymore because of the, the sex abuse, well, then I can't believe in families. The, the highest percentage of people who abuse are family members, like uncles, then I can't believe in uncles and family members. It's a horrible part of the world. It's a horrible part of human nature. Um, again, never for a second excusing it or what happened. And the cover-up should never have happened. Uh, but I, I still think the good outweighs the bad. But I think, as popes have said before, the church is full of saints and sinners. And it's not a divine institution. Sure, it's meant to be a link to the divine. But the church itself is human. It's not divine. So when you have human beings, you will have all the frailties and the flaws that we all have, which is greed, corruption, uh, abuse. Um, and when you have access to people and money, I mean, that will always be there. Um, it's just they should have been held to a higher account. They were held to a higher account and they didn't meet that, that high standard all the time, which I hope now is going to change for the better. Yeah, it's like that saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
you know, when they had, when the church had full control over the state. There, there's kind of, there's a similarities. I'm not saying that, you know, there's been abuse and that kind of abuse in the, the, the police here, but you, you'd see here with the, the defunded police movement and people are saying that there's some bad cops, yeah, and they're doing bad things. But as a whole, cops are good, you know, they're good and what, what they're driven to do, to do is to help people. And then the whole police force here in America has been tarnished and a bit like the church that there's a bad eggs and they've done awful things the whole church then has been tarnished so you know it's It's, absolutely right and i think you know we are trained in school and in university and all that to have reason and to be reasonable people and to see things as not being black and white and when i see people shouting to defund whole police forces I remember I talked to someone here in Brooklyn. Now, Brooklyn would be very, very left-leaning. but And they were saying, yeah, no, they're all they're like racist to the core, they, she said to me about the police force. And then you, ha- you can only go on what you know. So I think of all the police officers I know, the police officers I've interviewed over the years. I've got some family members who are cops in Rhode Island. And I think, are they racist to the core? No. Are they racist at all? No. Do they just want, like all of us, to get by, pay the bills, and do their best to help others? It's complete baloney. There are, a core, there are a group of people who do bad things, but that's a small percentage and it, doesn't, it shouldn't paint a picture for the whole force. Mm. So I wonder how people don't have that reason anymore, especially online, you know, and Twitter and Facebook. And then I think, well, maybe because Twitter is such short bus, bursts of information that there's just no scope to have that more reasonable, intellectual, in-depth uh, conversation about something. It's just a quick defund the police, you know, black and white issue. If you support this person, you, you stand for that. Things are much more complex than that. Johnny, when you opened the bar now in January, I, I remember when the riots happened here, there was someone across the road from you. They, I saw a video. So the long haul there, Cullum, there was there's a, a liquor store or an, an offie, as we'd say in Cork, next door to the next door to the long haul. And the place was just being looted. Looted, like, you know. So Johnny, if you're opening up again in January, February, are you kind of concerned about the crime rate in the city or...? Oh, like, I don't think we have a COVID problem at the moment in New York. It's the crime that's the problem. Like, who's going to open now with the homeless and just the drugs? Like, you just go, go to Herald Square, just walk around any of them areas. My friends, my brother's in there. They've opened at the moment in Haswell Greens. And uh, the biggest challenge I have now is uh, people coming up and bothering the customers, sitting at the tables, and, uh, get like, literally, <clears throat> they're standing up to you, you know. They're like, who are you to tell me? My brother told me one of the biggest problems is, they're trying to come in to use the toilet. My brother's like, fine, like, you know, do you have a reservation? But he asked me and you the same thing. He said, I need your name. I need you. I, I can't let you in. We need, you know, you need to do trace. And I get an aggressive back with them, you know, because there's nothing to answer to. They're not that worried. That was, I'm not worried about the COVID as regards the bars opening. That's what I'm worried about is that, like, how would you go home in the evening time and leave a waitress there and a bartender on their own, like, in the bar right now? You wouldn't. Like, you couldn't. So. I think we're a long way from opening in re- as regards that any of the bars. That's my, my take on it anyway. Yeah. Did you see that video a couple of days ago? Did some guy in the subway at 11 o'clock in the day, he tried to, to, mm. to rape you. Know, it was yeah, brutal. Mike, my headphones are okay. about to go and die. Yeah, and no problem. I think, we, I think we've, we, we've covered everything there, lads. Uh, Colm, t- thanks very much. Re- really appreciate it for uh, g- giving, giving us your time. Guys, when I got the call saying, Colm, can you come on the Long Haul podcast? I thought the guys are really stuck. They have <laughs> gone out of everyone. It's a bad day for the Long Haul podcast. <laughs>
all the J1ers that gone home, they didn't come. We didn't have them to take the piss out. We couldn't get them on to take the piss out. We went for old school J1er. We went for the class of 2010. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, we're talking about people leaving the city. I was like, everyone must have left the city because I'm getting a call to come on this podcast. I appreciate it, guys, and keep up the good work. No problem. And that's all for this week. Let us know what you think by leaving us a comment on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Long Haul Pod or on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast and be sure to check out some of our other episodes, including our New York GA Championship preview with Frank Brady, our interview with Cork footballing legend Larry Tompkins, and our US Visas episode with top attorney Larkin Shannon and lots, lots more. All of our podcasts are up on thelonghaulpodcast.com and on all major podcast streaming platforms.